You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with George Pelicanos. To listen to the full interview or hear more about the Creative Process projects, please visit www.creativeprocess.info. So you're going to read from uh, your latest book? Yes, The Man Who Came Uptown. It's a short section and the protagonist, Michael Hudson, is uh, incarcerated at the DC jail. And uh, this is him at night. In his cell that night, lying in the upper bunk, which he had taken for its better light, Michael Hudson read a Western novel that Anna had chosen for him. It was one of two full-length novels that were bound in the same book, part of a series called Elmore Leonard's Western Roundup. This was volume three. He'd been reading with urgency as it was almost time for lights out. He had just finished the novel and its last line had given him the chills. It had jacked him up to the degree that he had gone back to the first page with the intention of reading the book again. The name of the novel was Valdez's Coming. Michael reread its first two paragraphs. Picture the ground rising on the east side of the pasture with scrub trees thick on the slope and pines higher up. This is where everybody was, not all in one place, but scattered in small groups, about a dozen men in the scrub, the front line, the shooters who couldn't just stand around. They'd fire at the shack when they felt like it, or when Mr. Tanner passed the word, they would all fire at once. Others were up in the pines and on the road that ran along the crest of the hill, some 300 yards from the shack, across the pasture. Those watching made bets whether the man in the shack would give himself up or get shot first. Michael liked how the author set everything up real fast from jump, like without telling you too many details, you knew right away what was happening. It gave you a feeling and made you choose a side. There's a man in the shack and he's outnumbered and outgunned. And there are many men on the high ground shooting down on the man who is alone and there's a man in charge named Tanner who has given the orders. Straight on, because most folks side with the underdog, you're hoping that someone helps the man in the shack and stops this man, Tanner. The man you think is going to help is a Mexican constable and former soldier named Bob Valdez. He comes on the scene and does something, is tricked into it, really, that is unexpected. And then Tanner, being who he is, does the Mexican dirt. Valdez is a man who is alone and Tanner is powerful and he has many men backing him up. So Tanner shoves Valdez because he can. And the more he shoves him, the harder Valdez gets and the more he pushes back. By the end of the book, Tanner realizes that he should have given Valdez what he wanted to begin with, which was not much at all. It wouldn't have cost so much. Picture the ground rising on the east side of the pasture. Picture it. The author, Mr. Leonard, is telling you to look at it, to see it in your head. It's a bold way to start the story, but it does what it sets out to do. Michael could picture the rise of the land and the pines and the men in groups firing down on the one man who was cornered in his shack. And Michael could guess what wasn't on the page because of the vivid description of what was. Maybe there was a chill in the air since they were high up in those hills. 
Maybe there were cotton white clouds moving across a bright blue sky and shadows on the pines when those clouds drifted across the sun. Michael closed his eyes. When he read a book, he wasn't in his cage anymore. There wasn't a lock on his door or the rank smell of the dirty commode by the bunk or his low ass cellmate passing gas in his sleep or the sounds of men shouting in the unit. Guards telling him what and what not to do. He hadn't disappointed his mother. He wasn't looking at five years in a federal prison on a felony gun charge. When he read a book, the door to his cell was open. He could step right through it. He could walk those hills under that big blue sky, breathe the fresh air around him, see the shadows moving over the trees. When he read a book, he was not locked up. He was free. So we were talking about, um, yeah, the wire. What did you enjoy about that process or how, how did you transition into that? Um, well, um, it was, it was a, an adjustment for me because I had been, at that point, I had written, um, uh, I, I don't know, 10 novels or something like that and by myself, sitting in a room by myself and, and working with one person who was my editor. And then all of a sudden I had to go, I'd never, I'd never been to a writing school where they, where you sit around with other students and, and they critique your work and that kind of thing. I don't think I'd like that. Um, so, but that's what happened. I got in the writer's room with all these, all these writers and there was a lot of uh, critiquing what you had done and, and there was a lot of discussion and then there was a lot of argument too. And some of it was pretty, um, pretty aggressive. So, uh, you had to get used to that. You had to have a thick, you had to have thick skin to be able to deal with that, I found. And, but my whole thing was I wanted to get better. Um, when I wrote my first script for The Wire, although certain things like the Wallace murder were, were untouched and they, they went, they were shot as I wrote them, a large majority of that script was not, was not uh, shot as I wrote it. Um, Simon rewrote a lot of it. And I called him up afterwards and I said, what, what happened to my script? And he's like, well, you got, you got about 30% of it. You wrote about 30% of it. So that's, that's actually pretty good for a first time screenwriter. Um, so, you know, that's, a, that's at a point where a lot of novelists walk away. They just say, I'm not doing this anymore, you know, because what's mine is mine. I didn't get into this to get rewritten by somebody. But it had the opposite effect on me. I, it put a chip on my shoulder. And I, I didn't say this to him, but I said to myself, all right, next script I write, I'm going to get 50%. And the one after that, I'm going to get 70%. Well, by, I wanted to learn. And I did learn. And I also wanted to learn how to produce because I figured out that you don't really have control of anything until you're, until you're running a show. And that was, that became my goal. So I worked really hard on the wire for five years, five seasons. And, and I was on set every day. I was, I, I called a rap. I was in meetings and I learned to become a better, um, television screenwriter. And by the time of, um, season three, where I wrote the script middle ground, which is episode 311. It's the one where, um, uh, Omar and brother Muzon hunt down Stringer Bell. That was pretty much 98% written by me. 
and um, and it's one of the best things I've ever written, I think. But I do want to I do want to point out that many writers don't want to admit to this or say it is that it's just words on a page until everybody else makes it come alive. And you know, we had Idris Elba and and Wood Harris in that scene acting in that scene. At Joe Chappelle shooting it, he was the director. All the craftsmen and artists that worked on that made it what it, what it is, and that's actually what I like about. Um, it's why I continue to work in television. I like working with all these artists, and I like getting together with these people and making something together. It's not just the writing; it's everything that everybody contributes to to make it what it is. And then you have this object in your hand. It used to be a DVD <laughs> with a box cover, but you know, you have something, it's like a book. You've made it, but you've made it together. No, I think it's very beautiful and it's a miracle how it can all come together. I can't imagine, and, and to deadline and, and all these things and to budget. And I remember something that a, a showrunner told me that I was surprised too, because you're talking about his words on the page. And, and this really, I thought, wow, this is someone, he, he writes poetry too. And he said, I don't, this seems odd. It is odd to speak to a novice about this. He said, I don't care about the words. He didn't care. He said he didn't care about the language. And I was, I don't know about your, but your, your scripts are so beautifully articulate at the same time as being real. It's never sacrificing realism. But I thought, what well, a strange thing for a writer to say that they didn't care. I don't know. It didn't make sense. It, it brings up another point, Mia, that um, my scripts look different than other people's scripts, I think. Um, when you read Hollywood scripts and that's all they've done is, is write for Hollywood or write for network television, there's a lot of white space on the page. It's, it's mainly dialogue with very, um, very limited description. If you look at one of my scripts, the page is full of paragraphs. And in, in my head, I'm, I'm writing a novel. Um, and, I, and in other words, when I, when I walk a character into a room, it's right there on the page what's in that room, what they're wearing, what the music is, you know, what car they're driving. Um, it's very descriptive because I'm trying to control the process the way I control the process when I'm writing a novel. And, and that's, what I, that's what I bring to it. But also as a showrunner, um, I, I sit in on every single meeting and prep, costumes, hair and makeup, uh, props, picture cars, locations, everything. And we go through the script scene by scene so that when we get to set, there's not going to be any surprises. I know exactly what people are going to be wearing when they show up for set that day. And I know what cars are going to be 